You're listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Protein Machining, and this week I'm joined by Nick Kiefer of Crew Golf. Welcome, Nick. What's going on, buddy? Not too much. I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Of course. So for anybody who hasn't seen you on Instagram or online, what is Crew Golf? What do you guys do? Where can they find you? All that good stuff. Yeah, Crew Golf, we're, we're just over a year and a half now. Um, we're basically a custom putter and golf club accessory company, um, started in Chicago, Illinois, and we do all the programming, manufacturing, machining. Well, I, I, I do all of it. Me and my business partner, my business partner handles the role of the business stuff, which I hate doing. And I do the putter making and programming and machining. Man, you got the good side of that deal, at least in my eyes. I'm trying, man. I'm trying. (laughs) Well, Let's get into your backstory because one of the reasons I reached out was that Simon over at Freddie Products was like, hey, you've got to talk to Nick. He's got such a crazy backstory, like so many ups and downs. So yeah. let's get into it. Like, How did you, what, what was your path to getting into manufacturing? Yeah, so we'll kind of start growing up. So um, I'm 28 years old. Um, I, I married early and I got three kids. I got a five-year-old, a three-year-old and a nine-month-old, all boys. And um I basically grew up playing baseball my entire life and um, I ended up doing really well at it and had a a chance to play in the professionals and I actually got hurt. So um, when I got hurt, I didn't really know what to do because that was, you know, my main job. My main focus was to be able to play baseball for the rest of my life and um, I didn't really have a backup plan. So after I got hurt, I basically went into the normal, um, you know, work scene and worked at a couple companies. I did some like custom kitchen installs. And then, um, I got into golf in 2015 and from my baseball background, I ended up just kind of being able to hit the golf ball far. And, um, I, I can never putt, which is kind of the ironic part of this whole story. But, (laughs) um, I got into a thing called professional long drive, and I ended up starting competing in 2016, had a really decent year of my first out. And 2017 was kind of the uh, breakout year. I ended up getting third at the World Championships on Golf Channel. And, uh, you know, I was on Golf Channel a handful of times. And I ended up making that basically a career of mine. So I competed full time and I also traveled and I did like corporate and charity events for people. And um, how I got into the machining aspect of it is that. I was signed with Callaway, the OEM golf company, the big call, golf company. And when you're signed with them, they basically send you a bunch of stuff for free. So they send you clubs, you know, balls and everything like that. And I had so much stuff and I wasn't really using it. And for your contract, you obviously can't sell that stuff off. So um, I ended up starting to customize that type of stuff, you know, different paint fills. Um, I actually had a small sandblast cabinet at the time. So I would create stencils and, you know, sandblast patterns and people really found a niche to that. And, uh, you know, I, I had people ask me on Instagram, you know, how much to do that on my club. And I actually started a company called 847 Customs before I started Crew Golf. So 847 Customs is kind of like the sister company. So we do kind of customizations for, you know, other, other putter companies and wedges and irons and stuff like that. And then for about a year, of doing that from basically growing it to nothing to now I have like 9,300 followers on Instagram. That is like insane. And the amount of work and the amount of support that we got through that company, um, 
I was like, you know what? Like I'm sick of working on other people's putters. Like as far as like other OEM brands, I was like, I could create this myself. Like I know what people like, I know what people want. Um, and just the attention to detail that I put into this other stuff. I was like, let's try and put it into something that's my own. So funny enough, my business partner for crew, we actually met playing on the golf course and we were basically like, let's try it. He didn't even know what a custom putter was basically. Like he didn't, he didn't know that these custom putters can sell for a lot of money. And we kind of took the leap of faith and, you know, started off having, um, a manufacturing company, um, in South Carolina, actually machine these heads because I had no experience about, about two years ago in any type of machining. And that's basically how crew started. And, um, right now, you know, I went from having a bridge port to having a mini mill with a fourth axis within five months and, you know, learning how to program fourth axis stuff. And it's insane, man. Like, I don't even know, you know, just the amount of growth and the amount of support and, you know, the support in the machining community is great. The golf machining community is a little bit different. I don't know if you've ever realized that, but the golf machining community is a little bit more secretive and a little bit, you know, they're, they're kind of a little stingy over on that side of it. <laughs> I, I haven't really dove into it all that much, um, but it, it does seem that, you know, like everybody is very protective of how they do things and that it's, there's so much art into it that people there, kind there of is. have their own process and things like that. But yeah, yeah I, I mean, there, there, there's so many ways, but at the end of the day, it's like, when you go to customize a club to put, you know, a finish on it or some type of color, there's only a, a certain amount of ways that you can do that. You know what I mean? Like if you were to take a part in, in face mill it, there's, there's kind of only a certain amount of ways that, that you can face face mill apart, you right. know? Right. Definitely. Yeah. No, it, it's, it was really interesting because I, I don't think I had even seen your Instagram page until Simon said something about it, but I, I've always been really interested in the machining side of, you know, golf hardware, because yeah. I grew up pretty much on a golf course. My dad's been nice. a teaching pro my entire life. You know, I think I started swinging clubs as the second I could start standing up on my own. Um, so I grew up around that and never realized any of that business side until, you know, very recently being on Instagram and seeing all this stuff pop up. But yeah, it's, yeah it's I mean, really cool. I will. I would say probably, I mean, there's some goats that definitely, you know, obviously started this. I mean, you know, Scotty Cameron is kind of the, you know, first one to create the hype behind putters and stuff like that and accessories and, you know, head covers and stuff like that. But I mean, there's, there's a, there's a few guys like Tyson Lamb is another big guy um, that kind of started after Scotty and he, he grew a massive cult following. And um, there's a lot of putter makers out there and there's, you know, enough people that play golf to be able to kind of have that industry for everyone to be able to do it. And if you, if you make a good product and you, and you pay attention to the attention to detail and you pay attention to, you know, milling lines and in paint fill and everything like that, like people, people will buy your stuff no matter, you know, how much it costs, which is, which is absolutely insane to me. And a lot of things that people don't understand is that there's a lot of work that goes into making a one-on-one custom putter a lot of time, you know oh, what I sure. mean? And, yeah. and it's not, you know, I wish it was as easy as just 
take it off the machine and put a neck on it, weld a neck on it, or even do a one-piece putter and say it's good to go. But there is a ton of hand finishing work that's got to be done. There's a ton of wheel work that's got to be done because at the end of the day, myself personally, like I'm still very, very new to machining. I've only been doing it for about five months and I still have a very long way to go. And what I fell in love with with machining is that you're always going to learn something. There, There's never a point to where you're going to be a master at everything because there's always going to be new technology coming out. There's always going to be new ways to do things, which is kind of, kind of why I like it so much. And from where I started manufacturing our own putters in house to now it's like, it's, it's the stuff that I've learned in just a year of, or actually five months of doing this since we got the machine. It's, it's, it's crazy. Just learning different tool paths and, and why this tool does this. And it's so cool to me. Well, let's go over that process then. How did you decide to, you know, jump into the deep end and buy a CNC and learn all of this with zero experience? And did you do the same thing with welding too? Did you have any welding yeah. experience? No, I had zero welding experience. So, how so. did you justify that? You know, how, what kind of research did you do on your machines? All that thing, all that stuff. So, this is kind of how I am with 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 my my business. Like, if I'm going to be selling something to someone, I want it to look as best as it possibly can. And being a small company and you're sending your stuff out to people and you're getting your heads done by someone else, it, it, they don't take it as serious as if it's their own. Right. Right. So my whole thing was like, listen, like some of our stuff's coming back bad. Then we got to send it back out. This head isn't the correct weight. Like this milling line looks like crap. So it was like, listen, me and my business partner were like, either we're going to have to get a shop because we don't have enough room or we're going to buy a machine. And we chose the way of buying a machine. We actually found a, a used mini mill. Um, the guy before us had it and only had 20 hours on it. He basically, <laughs> he basically turned the machine on, ran one part and left the chips in it. There was probably a cup and a half of chips in the bottom of the machine and didn't touch it for like a year. So we ended up getting a super, super, super good deal on that. It came with all tooling, all Lindex tooling. It came with the fourth axis, which we accidentally sold because it was a collet fourth axis and it wasn't like an HRT version of it. Oh. So we ended up selling that fourth axis, which is actually funny because one of the guys who listens to your podcast actually made a comment on it. Yeah. He, he, yeah Matt yeah, the he, button pusher said, yeah, yeah, yeah. thanks for the 5X or 5C yeah, right. index. So, so he was the guy who bought it off us and we gave him a really good deal on it. And, um, you know, it was like, listen, like if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go ahead in and same thing with the welding. Like, you know, I didn't, I didn't buy the most expensive stuff. Like I went to Eastwood and bought one of their TIG welders. It was like 1200 bucks and I did research on it and actually Brad from um, our glass engineering helped me through it. Right. Like he, he's a super good dude. I messaged him on Instagram a couple of times and he's like, yeah, like start off with this and this. And it was just practice, man. You know, a lot of this stuff is, is there's a lot of people that can do that, but there's a difference because people don't want to take the chances. And I totally understand like buying a machine and learning how to weld and stuff is a big chance. Like the machine is not cheap. I mean, for the for the used machine, I think we spent like fifty five grand with all the tooling and stuff like that. Like that's that that's a car, and if you don't learn how to use that fifty five thousand dollar machine, it's just a big paperweight. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It's like having a car that you can't drive. Yeah, but but the cool thing about machining, man, is that once you you know 
learn how to program and you can learn how to do a little bit of pro- there, it, it's endless on what you can create endless oh yeah yeah i very often you know i'll have customers say like oh well what can you do like what can you make i'm like with enough time and money anything like yeah. you, you, you let me know yeah i mean <laughs> kind of a funny story is that um a buddy of mine hit me up a few days ago and was like i really want a super heavy duty bottle opener and i was like okay like you know, like, do you have any idea what you want it to look like or anything? So he was like, no, he's like, I want you to make me one. I'm like, listen, dude, this is going to be expensive. I was like, I don't have a program for it. I was like, I need to write a program for it. I was like, I, I only have stainless steel. And he's like, I want it in copper. And I'm like, it's not going to work in copper because it's going to end up bending because you're going to keep opening bottles. So I ended up making it, m- making him a stainless steel bottle opener with like copper inlays. And uh, it, it, it's just crazy on like, he wanted something and I created it and you could sell that. Oh yeah. It's just, it's just super cool to me how that works, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and going back to your point earlier of like people will like, especially it seems like in the putter world will buy at any price point. It, it kind of reminds me of the knife market as well. where like, exactly. it, it's an emotional item and a very, an very emotional pur- purchase where like, they're not, there's nothing logical about spending that kind of money on a putter or a knife. Yeah, very, but it's, very it's all about like, oh, I love the way that looks. I love the craftsmanship, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, we're we're I mean, by no means are we, you know, at some price point of these other companies, we're a lot, lot cheaper, um, you know, for for the amount of time and, and money and, you know, time spent programming, everything like that. Like, I would say our average putter sell around 800 bucks. Um, and that's everything basically made in the U.S., by myself. Um, and then all of the other top quality stuff that we use, like we use this company called Dormy and they're a head cover manufacturer and they're in Nova Scotia, Canada, one of the best head cover companies in the entire country. Um, and everything that we use is all real leather. Our grips are all real leather. Um, shafts are, you know, top of the line OEM shafts. And we try and put everything into it that we can, and try and put a product out there that isn't, you know, two, three, four thousand dollars like some of these other companies are, just because that's, you know, kind of a little insane. But I mean, Scotty Cameron stuff, man, some of his, you know, circle T stuff and stuff that everyone can't buy is, you know, ten, twelve, thirteen thousand bucks and people buy it. Jeez. Yeah, that's insane. Like nothing, man. I mean, yeah. this is this market is very similar to the knife market, but it's also very similar to the watch market. Oh, jeez! As, as as far as the buying, trading, and resale stuff, there's a big market for that type of stuff, especially the head cover industry too. Like a lot of the head covers from Scotty Cameron, or like a lot of head covers from a company called Swag Golf. Some of these head covers, man, people will buy them for you know 150 bucks, and they're reselling for eight, nine to a thousand dollars on eBay. Jeez, just for it's, head cover? Yeah, man, it's absolutely insane. That's crazy. It's a big, big market. And, you know, ever since COVID, it's just exploded. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. It seems like everything has. Yeah, everything you know, has. People people realized what they really loved and just want to spend money on it. Yeah, I mean, this 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 world is in, in a crazy place right now, but people are still spending money, man. I'll tell you what. That's great. Well, yeah. I want to step it back a little bit. So how did you, when you left baseball and you started playing golf, I feel like 
long drive competitions are not the typical path many people take. So how did you find long drive? And maybe this will speak to your mentality, you know, going forward into your business and everything. Like, how did you just jump into competitions like that? So I basically wanted to get a driver um, and go to the driver range with like my buddies and stuff. And I ended up going to the PGA Superstore and I tried out a couple drivers and I ended up hitting the ball like 350 yards on the simulator. And like the guys in there were, were dumbfounded and they're like, have you ever heard a long drive? Um, and I was like, no, I've never heard of it. And that night I actually like looked it up and these guys are hitting it like 430, 440 yards. I was like, I'm never going to do that. And um, I ended up, my wife convinced me and she's like, let's just try it. So we ended up going to like a qualifier um, in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, the one year. And I, and I showed up with like one driver in my bag and I, I, I ended up taking like fourth place <laughs> in the qualifier. Jeez. And I was like, okay, um, you know, this is something possibly I can do. And then I ended up going back to another qualifier and I qualified for the world championships. So the That's world championships at, at, at that time was, was held in Thackerville, Oklahoma. And uh, the first year I ended up getting like top 36. I think there was like 120 guys at the world championships that all had to qualify. I ended up getting like top 36, which was pretty good for the first year. And um, after that year, um, I got all the, you know, correct equipment. And I actually found a swing coach that was local who really helped me out with my baseball golf swing and made it more of a golf swing. <laughs> and uh, 2017, I actually you know, went out and actually had a really, really good year. Um, I had, I think like six or seven top finishes on golf channel. And then, um, I got third at the world championships, which kind of, you know, opened the doors for a lot of things to progress in the sport of long drive and also, you know, entertain and just hit golf balls for people. And then unfortunately, after all that stuff, I ended up breaking my hand in 2018. Oh no. Um, yeah. So I kind of skipped over that. I totally forgot about that, but um, so I actually broke the hook of my hamate, the same injury that Bryson DeChambeau had. And, um, so I ended up breaking my hand and in 2018 is kind of when all, you know, everything kind of went down the tubes, like, because at the time I had nothing else besides hitting golf balls. And when I wasn't hitting golf balls, I wasn't making any money, $0. Right. So at the time my wife was seven, seven and a half months pregnant, working 55, 60 hours a week at a breakfast place, you know, oh. and we were, I mean, we were really struggling, man. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't want to admit when they were down in the dumps and, you know, was on their last leg of like, what do we do? And, and that was a point where I had no idea what to do. And that's where the customizations of the golf clubs kind of saved us, um, you know, and led me to, you know, create the 847 company and with all the support and, you know, do it for a living and also create crew. And now crew is, um, getting super, super busy, man, which is great. Yeah. That's killer. Yeah. I, I want to get into, you know, crew decisions that you've made, but real quick, what's the longest drive you've hit in competition? 467 yards. Jesus. Yeah. That's the, it's the longest one I got. I think the record now I want to say is like 490. That's insane. And, but I, I I don't know if I would here here's the thing. Elevation has a huge play. Um oh, in, yeah. tw in 2017 at sea level in Thackerville, Oklahoma, I hit a ball 435 with with no wind. Um and then the one that I hit 467 was in Mesquite. 
And then some of these other balls that these guys are hitting like 490 are in Denver with, you know, 20, 20 mile an hour downwind type stuff. So it's, it's tough, man. It just all depends on, you know, wind and climate and how hot it is and stuff like that. But yeah, 467 is farthest I got in competition. That's nuts. That is. Yeah. Every time I watch those long drives, it still doesn't make sense to me, man. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not a big dude. Like I might be big wide wise, but tall like i'm 510 on a good day with golf shoes on and you know a lot of these guys are 63 64 65 and it's just a baseball background man that's that's what you know made me be able to hit the golf ball super far <laughs> that's super cool yeah that is super cool so one of the questions we got from route co was what's your approach to fixturing and work holding and i kind of wanted to take that a step further and talk about learning how to fixture and work hold and like how did you even start? You know, you had, you, you've worked on customizing putters. You knew what they sh- the shapes were. How, how did you even start designing them and machining them? You know, what, what were your steps? Yeah. I mean, the steps were basically trial and error. Um, you know, I use, I use fusion 360, um, for myself. Um, it's the most affordable and most community, kind of based in my opinion software that you can get there's a lot of people that use it there's a lot of tutorials on youtube fusion has a huge community inside of the program um you know i started off basically messing around on fusion you know drawing things and does this work does that work and you know obviously i i I would take other oem heads and try and replicate it and get it close and then make my changes to it that i wanted to 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 you know see what looks better and what doesn't look better um but a lot of trial and error. Um, programming to me is still one of the most challenging things. Like there's a lot of things that I have to ask other people like, Hey, you know, how do I do this? How do I do that? Um, I'm, I met a really good guy in Savannah, Georgia, um, who, who works at a shop. That's a programmer over there that has helped me tremendously. Um, there's a lot of guys, um, a buddy of mine who owns a putter company in Hawaii, we've became really good buddies in the last couple of years. And, um, it's called SNRG putters. They're in Hawaii and he's helped me out tremendously. Um, but there's very, very few people in the putter industry that will help you out. And I get it, right? Like you create something, it's your own baby. You don't want to share anything. You don't want to share how to do it, which is fine. So for me, it was just, you know, a lot of video tutorials on YouTube, um, trial and error and drawing and fusion and, basically, you know, breaking a lot of tools, man, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so what about like play testing? Because I, I mean, I think even those who are listening, who don't play golf, we've all yeah. designed something that we think is perfect. You print it first or you machine it and you're like, wow, this is garbage. Like, yeah. you know, and I imagine that could be even more so with a putter where, you know, things like weight and weight distribution and face 100%. angle and all that stuff can really affect your play. So when I first started, um, I made the mistake. So on a putter, on a, on a good, you know, OEM putter or something that's, you know, more, more high end of, of not, not your like, you know, hundred dollar putters, but your three, four, five hundred dollar putters. There's actually a draft on the bottom of the putter of roughly like a degree to a degree and a half. And I had no idea that draft was there. So basically a, a, a draft as some people might not know, but it's, it's an angle on the putter that makes it so it actually doesn't sit flat. 
it actually sits a little bit open. Right. So what that does is that if you did not have that draft there, which I had no idea, right? Because I wasn't, I, I was not a good putter. I was hitting the golf ball far, but I just love the fact of, you know, creating something that looked great. If you don't have that draft there, that putter actually would sit closed. And when you putt, for the people that, that, that aren't really golfers, but you, you might understand, but, but when you putt, a lot of people will actually forward press that putter a little bit before they bring it back. So if that putter is not sitting a little bit open and you forward press that putter and it's already sitting closed, if you don't have that draft, you're going to de-loft that putter by like three and a half, four degrees. Right. Exactly. So that is, so that, so that's going to affect the stroke a lot. So that's one of the main things that I had no idea about. And then I was looking at the other putter and my buddy told me from why he's like, yeah, I got to, you know, you have to put a draft on the putter. No idea. You know? <laughs> so like, that's the main thing, right? That is oh, just yeah. small little things that I had no idea about until I learned and going into the fixed stream portion of it. As you know, a lot of people will know who watch this podcast, fixed stream is the hardest thing in the entire world. And I think someone who can create fixtures it is, it's an art, number one, but it is super, super challenging, especially in programming and stuff like that to get everything correct with all the measurements and, you know, how, how far is this putter sitting off this? And I mean, fixturing is, is unbelievably tough. Oh yeah. Well, and especially, like you said, you've got all this draft on a putter. It, there's not like a ton of square faces yeah. to grab on. <laughs> Yeah, so so for me, like we just got our fourth axis in. Um, we purchased a fourth axis, a HRT one sixty, and I just got a Martin Trunnion table for it, basically an L shaped table that I can mount my orange vice onto. So now this comes a new step of me learning the fourth axis. But the reason being why we got that is because number one, that draft on the back right now, I'm using a one and a half degree tapered end mill and having to basically go along the back. But there's no way I'm super, super picky, just like Brad. I'm super, super picky on machine lines and finishes mm -hmm. to where there would be no way for me to get the finish that I want with that one and a half degree tapered end mill. Absolutely no way. So now with the fourth axis, I'll be able to tilt that. You know, I can even tilt it 90 degrees and I can surface it with a ball end mill or do some kind of cool patterns on the bottom like that. But oh, that'd for, be really cool. But for fixturing, 90% of the putter is done face down, right? 90% right. of the putter, putter is done face down. Just I use I use orange vices. They work out great just because with the mini mill, you don't really have that much table space. So I'll use those. 90% of the putter is done face down. And then the fixture to create the, the, the face. Another thing, too, is that when you flip that putter over, that face needs to sit at three degrees aloft. So you, so you have, so you actually have another draft more loft on the face. That's three degrees. So you can't just stick it in a flat surface and machine that because then the face is going to be flat and not with three degrees aloft. So that's another hurdle that I had to learn as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we made some putter faces for a company years ago now that were copper faces. Yep. And they were, yeah, they were angled on one side and like the, the print that came along with them, they were like, Oh no, we want you to, know tilt them and then they they had that you know the face mill marks the really wide spaced ones or the, yeah. the fly cutter marks and we ended up surfacing that entire yep. face and then engraving it basically with a, a 
chamfer mill and yep. just doing a 3D trace toolpath to do that, those marks rather than like buying a fly that cutter. Just, you know. That just took forever probably to do that, man. <laughs> it, it wasn't terrible and it was way faster than doing a third setup. Like if we had had a Correct. fourth at the time, I totally would have, you know, just yeah. done it the right way, I guess, you know, in air quotes. But um, yeah, saving a setup, it was like, oh, these are now super easy parts. And I think they came back once after that, but it was always cool. Like, I, I think I've got one lying around somewhere and i'm like man i want to build a putter now you know just to yeah. use this like not that i golf that much anymore but um it would be it would be cool it'd be cool to yeah. have like your own club yeah so I, how, how i first started doing it um i mean there's 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 basically two ways to where 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 you can do the face just like you did to where you can basically surface it um to that to that loft desire so our loft standard is three degrees. Um, that's that's pretty standard kind of in the golf community for putters. But how I how I did it, and I was talking to a buddy of mine, um, and what I did is I built a three degree plate. I basically machined a three degree plate out of um, aluminum, and I put my vice, my orange vice. I made two mounting holes, and I put my vice on that three degree plate, and then I put the jaws, and I actually machined the jaws at three degrees to, to be able to hold that putter. Oh, neat. And then when I took that plate off and I put my jaws back down, now that putter was sitting in my, in my jaws flat. So now instead of me taking the time to surface everything, because your, your, your face inserts were, were probably a lot smaller than, you know, four and a, a half inches. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, so, and they're not stainless either. So like surfacing yeah, yeah, copper exactly. is pretty quick where stainless yeah. would be like, okay, that's a lot of tool. Tool exactly. time and tool life issues and all that. Um, so now when it's sitting flat, I can basically take my face mill and I can, you know, do three or four depth cuts at, you know, 30 thou and I can have a flat face now. And now I can do my radiuses on the edges and make it all nice and pretty. And then I take what I use is I just use a 90 degree index mill with, with, with one insert. It's just a one and a quarter to kind of create that, that face pattern. And I just have certain speeds and feeds and it, and I can make them, you know, wider, I can make them closer together. So now going from, I think my, my machining time when I was surfacing, it was probably like 32 to 33 minutes for the face. Now it's like eight. Oh, wow. Somewhere around that area. So, you know, because I was taking a quarter inch ball and I was stepping over like seventh thou on the face to surface it down. And I tried to go a little bit less and it was still kind of creating. And then I switched to a one eighth ball and it looked fine, but it just took forever. And when I'm trying to, you know, get 27 to 30 putters done within, you know, a, a certain period of time, that's a big, big difference in time, you know? Yeah, seriously. And that's also another reason too, why we got the fourth axis is just to save on time because at the end of the day, it's like, we are still small, but like right now, I, I have about 27 putters in our queue that have to be done. And if I can save myself, you know, four or five minutes per 27 putters, that's a lot of time. Yeah, it really is for sure. So that's just one of the big thing. And then also for the bottom of our putter, I had to create a fixture to where it holds that putter to where I can get to the bottom, but it also is tilted. So that one and a half degree draft is parallel. So that's another fixture that I had to create. But now with the fourth axis, I could literally flip it, 
flip that entire putter over and I could be able to kind of alternate that putter back and forth to where I can machine the entire bottom of the putter now. Yeah, that's so, going to be such a big upgrade. Oh, I mean, I mean, listen, man, like I, again, like I'm five months into this and, you know, my brain's going to explode from all this stuff that I'm trying to learn, but <laughs> it's, it's so cool what you can do to a piece of metal, man. It's super insane. Well, let's talk a little bit about the welding process too, because when I've, whenever I've looked at like putters and, you know, if I wanted to make my own or something, I for sure would go with a one piece neck because I yeah. know I'm not a competent enough welder. And like, it seems, it seems like that could be such a nerve wracking step because you've already put all this machining time into a putter and then you're like, oh, well, I, I could, you know, easily scrap it out on the welding. Oh yeah. I mean, I've, I've scrapped out a lot of putters, you know? And, um, but here's kind of the thing that we were thinking, right? Like we're eventually going to come out with one piece putters. The problem is, is that you have a lot more material cost and oh, a yeah. lot, a lot more machining time. Um, but the weird thing to me is that one piece putters tend to be less expensive. Really? Yeah. Which is, which is kind of weird. I, th- I think just because a lot of the people like the custom aspect of the welded on neck, um, just because it's not like an everyday thing that people see, um, but one piece putters talk about fixturing. I mean, with the force ethics access, obviously it, it's going to be easier, but if you have a three axis and you're, and you're going to try and do a, a, a one piece putter, I mean, you're talking about eight or nine fixtures. Right. Roughly. Yeah, Cause you got to get into the hole in the neck and like exactly. that's at a cup, a compound angle. Exactly. And yeah. Yep. And then now you're talking about, you have a three degree loft on an entire putter face that you need to figure out a fixture how to hold that neck in place while you're machining that three degree face it's just it's a crap ton of fixtures to do a one piece putter so with the welding um i basically was like listen like there was a shop close to us that was doing our welding before and you know like it just they did a great job like you know the the guy over there did a great job but it just wasn't like what i was looking for you know it was it was super super tiny welds and it just didn't fit right with the size of the head and the neck and you know i was like screw it dude i was like i, I mean this can't be that hard <laughs> you know and <laughs> i went to eastwood i did some research and you know i went from i'm i mean i'm telling you i had zero experience welding never touched a welder in my entire life and then i'm going to go and buy a tig welder and i mean i didn't even know that you know, there was different size gas lenses for this and that and different. I mean, I had no idea. Right. So I ended up going to Eastwood, basically buying like a starter kit. Um, I want to say I spent like fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars to get a TIG setup. And I still use that same welder today and I'm welding stuff all the time. Like I welded actually some exhaust tubes actually about a week ago and never done that before. And because of the practice that I did with the TIG, it's, I did a decent job on it, you know, but that's awesome. But that's not easy either. No, I mean, listen, man, TIG welding is, is on another level and, you know, talking with Brad and I mean, he's great and aluminum to me is harder for some reason. A lot of guys say that aluminum's easier, but I think stainless is just maybe just because I really never even did aluminum that much. But for me, it was just practice. Like I went online, I bought those coupons that you can weld on just like mm-hmm. the stainless steel coupons. And I probably spent, you know, 
$150, on those stainless steel coupons and just went to town, man. Just went through about three or four tanks of gas and <laughs> was just going to town, trying, trying different setups, trying different lenses and, you know, trying different wires and recommended tungsten and everything. And, um, that's it, man. Practice. What kind of fixturing do you have for the welding side of the business? Fixturing is just basically a small, cheap Amazon all metal vice that I can basically just put the putter in there. I tighten it down a little bit and then I have marks on where I put the necks on and I tack the neck on. I orientate the putter and the vice to where I'm comfortable, you know, doing the welds and I do one weld, flip it over on its side do the other weld, blend them together, flip it over, do the other weld. And that's basically it, man. That's very interesting. Do very, you find- very, very minimal. You don't, you, you don't need, you know, a lot of crazy, you know, high end stuff. You just have to practice your welding because any, any good welder will tell you like some of these guys are welding upside down and their welds turned out beautiful. Right. right. Like as long as you can have a comfortable position to where, you know, you can get your hand from point A to point B without, you know, jagging up the lines or stopping and, and going, then you're fine. Yeah. Well, and it's not like there's a lot of force going through the welds on a putter. You know, it's exactly. not like, not that you would, but it's not like you're welding a driver head on or something no, yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. I've, I've, I've had one, I've had one neck that has broken off the weld from me bending it. And that was just my fault of not heating the neck up enough before I bent it. But other than that, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm bending these things decently, you know, far and I've never had one issue. That's great. Yeah. So from what you were saying, it sounds like, and I've seen this kind of in the design of a lot of putters on the market. It seems like there's a, almost a strong, a strong feeling against CNC and automation and things like that. You know, everybody seems to want hand stamped and hand filled and, and welded, like you said, versus a one piece neck. Like, do you find that customers are very wary about hearing CNC? I think it's kind of a double, double edged sword. Um, you know, you have a lot of guys that are always like, you know, handcrafted, which I mean, we, we, we say as well, because a lot of our work is hand finished. Um, but you have some of these guys, dude, in this industry that still make these putters on a bridge board. Right. Like, yeah, from, when it, from, it seems like they like, it seems like a lot of these people wish that everybody was doing it like that. Yeah. Which, which to me, like I would have to sell a putter for $5,000 if I was going to make it on a bridge board, it would take the um, uh, amount of time that you would have to create something that, that we create with all the radius and stuff probably wouldn't even be possible on a bridge board, to be honest with you. But Yes. Do I think that some people are, are against it? Yes. Um, you know, but people need to realize like people always go back to Scotty Cameron, Scotty's Cameron, Scotty Cameron. I'm not knocking Scotty Cameron. He's the dude who is the goat and has started kind of this whole crazy, you know, collectors thing. But like, from what I understand, Scotty, Scotty didn't start machining his own putters either. Right. He started on a bridge port and then he had actually outsourced his putters for many, 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 many years. Um, and I'm not sure if he even does his own putters yet or, or, or anything, but to have someone create something through a program and then machine that and then hand finish that, whether it's hand stamping or machining, 
it's it's kind of a, a a weary subject to some people because people want the hand stamped you know actions from it, but some people like the cleaner look, right? Like some people don't want the hand stamps; they want you know a super precise engraving on the bottom. So it's just kind of all over the place, you know. Yeah, it's it, like coming from a machinist background. It's always seemed very sacrilegious almost for to hand stamp such a nice machined exactly. item you know I, I see like you said like tyson lamb or something like that and i'm like like i understand that that's what the market wants but i, I see you know all, all these people hand stamping i'm like why would you ruin such a nice looking finish with a hand stamp i i i listen i agree because we've had some putter designs where i'm like listen i i i don't think we should hand stamp this i think we should engrave it right like s- stuff in the cavity like certain letters in the cavity are tough to hand stamp to make look good like k's are really tough to hand stamp just because of how the metal takes the k it just doesn't it just doesn't look right so i always try and engrave stuff that doesn't look right um but also another thing too is that in the machinist world like yourself like you obviously understand the putter industry a little bit but like a lot of these guys that are like hardcore machinists like they're like, why do you have these million marks? Like that looks like crap, or that's not supposed to be there. And I'm like, dude, that that's the whole point. Like you have the million marks because that's an aesthetic look for this putter, right? right. Like, like on the second tier of my my putter, I purposely put the step over at ten tau so you could see the million marks. That's just an aesthetic look, right? Like I don't want it smooth as glass because that does doesn't look good. And then also another thing people don't think about is that. If you get a nick or a ding on something that's smooth as glass, you're going to see that way before you're going to see something that has more of a matte finish on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, the, well, it's like the the face, the, the face marks from a fly cutter. Like, had I not had a background in golf, I would have been like, why did they do that? Yeah, like, right. That, that's stupid. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, coming from golf, I'm like, oh, that's a very traditional look. People want that. It, it makes sense from that side of it. Face milling is a big controversy um, from making putters and doing a lot of different types of face milling. Um, I don't, I don't see a difference in, in super deep lines as far as a smooth face, as, as far as physical feel, it's a sound. So people get the sound and the feel confused. So when I have milling marks on my face, like on my stock putters, it, 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 sounds less clicky so in in turn it makes your brain seem like it's softer oh interesting right and people have 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 done tests and stuff there's a lot of technology on to where you can you know see what's going on and stuff like that but in my opinion and from what i've what i've had from people that are you know corn fairy tour players and stuff like that that have explained this to me the reason why people think that a softer face when you have deep milling marks is because the ball is hitting less surface area, but you're not making the ball compress enough to make any difference. So something that has less deep milling marks is going to sound clickier. Something that has a deeper milling mark is going to sound less clickier. So that's, so that's kind of the like weird thing about it. Now, obviously if you have a copper insert or if you have a a plastic insert, like a lot of these, you know, tailor-made putters and stuff like that have, obviously that's going to physically be softer. But if I have a stainless steel putter and I have a a smooth face, or if I have milling marks, it's just going to sound different. It's not going to physically make anything softer. 
That's really interesting. I, I never would have. Yeah. I, I never thought about that. Yeah. That's yeah. So feel, feel is sound though in golf, right? Like you have a, a, a putter that's really clicky or you have a putter that's pingy. Like that's a big, big difference to people. Oh yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure you felt the same way about different drivers or different yeah, you know, baseball bats or things like that. Yeah. hundred percent. So what about the um, wedge set that you prototyped? Where's all that going and how? Oh, that go? man. Wedges are another another whole world, man. I mean, so basically um, those wedges came from Japan. They were they were they were ungrinded, basically forged blanks. And those are I, I don't know what kind of steel they are. I know there's some type of Japanese like 1018 carbon um, and basically how how you can purchase them is that they're they're not grounded so you have about 70 to 90 grams of material that have to be grounded off of that so that's you buy them and they basically come straight out of the forge with the hosel board out and the face fly mill just to take the material off the face with the lines and then you can create them how you want them what shape you want what bounce you want you know everything and I made a couple sets, but it, the amount of grinding time on there, it, it just wouldn't be possible to be able to sell those at a decent price. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, like those OEM ones that come from Japan, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking $350, $400 per wedge, you know, Jeez. before yeah. you touch them. Yeah. Yeah. That's nuts. And you know, for me to be able to grind that, I mean, each one of those probably took about four and a half to five hours of grinding. So, you know, it just doesn't make sense to be able to do that. But I can tell you one thing, it's super, super cool to be able to grind something and put your own, you know, angles and everything on it off a wedge. Wedges are tough, man. Wedges are very, very tough. And now what's crazy now they have companies that are fully CNCing wedges and irons. So that was my next question: is the is the market there to be able to afford you the time to machine a, a billet? For us, no. Okay. For PXG and other ginormous companies, yes. Um, but people need to be careful because there's a difference between a fully CNC'd head. And a and a and a CNC head that is finished CNC, right? So a lot of these companies will say CNC milled, but they will have the forged blanks, you know, punched out and everything like that, and they will just finish the head on a CNC. They actually won't won't take a block of steel and machine that entire head out of, right? So that's that's also also the difference too. Um, I've never never personally hit. A fully CNC head. I couldn't tell you the difference. Um, I'm not, you know, good enough golfer to tell you the difference. But people are just trying to find new ways to, uh, you know, make the golf market. Yeah. Well, it seems like there's a lot of money there, and so they're 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 trying any kind of grab that they can for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, PXG came out of nowhere. I mean, Bob Bob Parson, the guy who I, I believe he sold Gold GoDaddy or something for a, a few billion bucks. So I, I think he's got a little bit of money to you know throw out there. <laughs> right? Yeah. He's like, oh no, I just want to do golf clubs. Why not? Yeah. Right. Oh, 
Well, that brings me on to shop news and new things. Are there any new purchases? You said you just got that fourth. Anything new in your world? Yeah, I just got the fourth in um, a Martin Trunnion table. Um, I've been really liking the Orange Vice stuff, man. Um, the fourth and fixed at fifth axis stuff, like the Delta Vices. Mm-hmm. Um, just basically for what we do and, and, and the size of stuff that we do is great. Um, they came out with a new iteration of it to where they have a floating movable jaw in the back to where you don't need to actually screw it down, which is great. Um, which is crazy to me. And I know that they're coming out with some new stuff. Um, other than that, um, Freddie, I got a Freddie vacuum coming. You do. I Congrats. do. I am super stoked about that. Um, I got the micro, the smaller one. I don't really need a huge one, but I mean, before man, I was, I, I basically bought a sub pump from home Depot and I had to take a hacksaw and cut all the fins around the sub pump to be able to fit it in the side window of the mini mill. And I was pumping it into a 50 gallon plastic bin. And then I was pumping it through a filter and it was such a pain in the butt, such a pain in the butt. So I talked with Simon Simon is probably one of the nicest guys um, in the entire world. And he convinced me to get one. And I'm hoping here in like the next two weeks, I'll, I'll be able to get one and clean my tank out because it's disgusting. <laughs> and then also, this is kind of a, kind of a small shop ingenuity design that I had. So before I got the machine, I actually had a three stage HEPA filter booth, um, in the shop that, and by the way, I, I, I my shop is my two car garage. So I started off like everyone else. So I have a two car garage with a mini mill, um, a 80 gallon compressor, three sandblast cabinets. I have three Baldor buffers. I have, you know, three workbenches. Like it's, it's, it's crammed. Right. And my, my goal and just like Brad was, it's like people would never know that I work out of a garage with the quality stuff that we put out. And (laughs) people are always like, that's awesome. Like, like, can I come visit your shop? And I'm like, sure. You can come to my house. You know, <laughs> right. yeah. but, um, so I had a three stage HEPA filter in here. Um, I was, I was doing Cerakote, um, for about a year and a half through the A47 company. Um, and I was doing a, a lot of Cerakote. So I, I had a three stage HEPA filter and it filtered out. It was like 99.9% clean air out the back of my house. So what's kind of cool now is that what I was getting problems with, with the mini mill, especially with the tramp oil on top is that when I'm, you know, busting out three, four putters at a time to where I'm running this thing for, you know, four hours straight, I, I go inside, let the machine run, come back out. And this whole shop's filled with, with mist, like just absolutely destroyed with mist. And I'm like, what the heck? So I actually took a Harbor Freight fan, one of those basically attic fans, and I created my own mist collector. And now I have zero problems. So I basically took the fan, I put a filter in front of that fan, and I put the fan on top to where the Haas mist collector would go. I ran a six-inch tube to the back, out my filters, and now I got a uh, mist condenser for 200 bucks instead of 1400 That's awesome. <laughs> and it works great. It's, it's super cool. Yeah, that's it's such a necessity. Like You don't think about it when you're starting. We just recently got a second one for the f600 yeah and like man yeah it, it, it's night and day difference for sure dude i mean it w- it was so bad in here like it looked like someone was v- vaping in here for like five hours <laughs> like, well and like the worst part is 
for for us at least, like you don't really notice it until you leave the shop. Exactly. And then you're like, you know, for me on my like commute home, I'm sitting there like breathing and all I can smell is coolant. I'm like, yeah, oh, this, exactly. is, this is bad. This yeah, is it's like, not it's not good to breathe that stuff in for long periods of time. Yeah. I don't think it could be good for you. Um, but other than that, that's basically it, man. Right, right now, me and my business partner are, you know, basically figuring out our next moves on, you know, shop space and, you know, do we get a bigger machine? And because I'm, 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 I'm running out of room very quickly with this machine. Um, like I, I want to be able to run more things at one time. And, you know, with this fourth access and with this table now, it's like, I'm limited to basically two putters at a time, you know? to where I can do, you know, first operation stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the, the biggest table for sure. And especially no. once you add that fourth. But I can tell you one thing, dude, this thing hogs some stainless. I mean, like I've, I've pushed it and it, I've never had one issue with it. I've never stalled out the spindle. I've, I've, I've never really had anything. I did crash the machine one time, but it wasn't horrible. Um, where I kind of drove a face mill into the Kurt Weiss and destroyed my Kurt Weiss. But, you know, stuff happens, you know? <laughs> right. But, yeah, I mean, dude, these little mini mills, man, they, they, I mean, for the money, like, this this, this does have 10K spindle. Um, it does have high-speed machining. It does have rigid tapping. So this, this machine came with basically quite a lot and fully loaded. The only thing I don't have is that I don't have the Renshaw probe. So right now I just basically touch everything off with a Heimer. Um, but with the stuff that I, I use it for and the amount of stuff that we do, I don't really need a probe right now. I, I'd rather take that 6,000 and, you know, buy it into work holding and stuff like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah it, 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 I think it's one of those things where once you get it, you'll be like, oh man, I wish I had this. But exactly. when you're small, like you gotta, you gotta move the money where it needs to be. Exactly. Yeah. And that was like with us with the fourth axis. It's like, listen, like I, I'm going to spend, you know, probably a hundred hours trying to figure out how to make all these other fixtures to be able to hold these clubs in certain ways. And I was like, listen, let's just get this fourth. Now, now with this fourth axis, I, I eliminated five, six fixtures right off the bat, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, and you I'm know excited, that everything's man. like going to be in relation to each other. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to, you know, take this next step and to, you know, learn how to use this properly and use it to my advantage. And, you know, again, like I said, man, machining is endless. If, if you can figure out how to program it and figure out how to hold it, I mean, you can make anything, man. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, that's the fun part is it, it always, it always keeps your brain churning. Oh, it's, it's crazy. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's like when I can't sleep at night, when I'm like, man, I should have did this or I could have held this like this or like, you know, I, I was off by, you know, 15,000s, like, <laughs> right. It's just, it's everywhere. Yeah. But I mean, there's all those studies that say like the old people who are, are so coherent still are the ones who keep their brains working. And so that, that makes me hopeful for my future. <laughs> yeah. Right. You gotta, you gotta get up and walk and just learn how to machine and you'll live forever. Yeah. Well, that brings me to the last question I ask every guest, which is, what did you research this week? Well, I researched a ton of stuff on the fourth axis. And to be honest with you, there's not really much I can find um, as far as YouTube content. Um, I reached out to a few guys, but mainly just fourth axis stuff. You know, um, the simultaneous to where I'm, I'm going to 
you know, eventually machine the bottom of the putter where I can simultaneously move that fourth access back and forth and still be able to machine is something that I'm very, very interested in. Um, but as, but as far now, like the researching that I'm doing is more positional. So it's, it's, it's going to be, you know, mill one side of the putter, you know, move half a degree positional, take my ball and mill and go over the radiuses and move it positional stuff like that. So that's been kind of more of my research stuff. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot to dive into there. I know oh, we're it's, yeah, it's a, still learning about our fourth. Yeah. It's a, it's an endless pit. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, Nick, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time and getting to hear your story. Yeah, man. It's uh, fun, man. For all the people that are listening, I'm probably one of the newest guys that, that has been on this show, you know, five months into it. And I fell in love with machining and it's, it's something that changed my life. So I'm excited to move forward and I'm excited. I'm, I want to go to the, what's that show called in September? IMTS or. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You that? I, I'm 35 minutes away from there, man. I live 35 Sweet. minutes away from there. So I'm going to bring my wife and she's, she actually, you know, has an interest in, you know, seeing all the cool stuff too. Cause she's like, you made that out of that brick of metal. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, I'm excited, man. I'm excited to meet a lot of people in the community and just keep learning and, you know, create a, create a, a friendship and a brotherhood with all these guys. Definitely. Well, we'll definitely have to meet up and uh, I want to put a face to the name and everything. Yeah, for sure, man. And real quick before we close, Patreon thank yous. Thank you to Jason and Kevin for joining the Patreon. Helps me send people like Nick a headset so we can do episodes like this. Amazing. Thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back next week.